We are joined by the great Alan Alda. What's that applause? Is that on the recording? Uh, We have a large studio audience just for you, Alan. I don't believe that. Turn turn the camera on the audience. (laughs) uh, They've uh, they've signed a non-disclosure agreement. We're not. Yeah, right. (laughs) It's the engineer with his finger on a button. I can't fool me. I've been in this business too long. (laughs) That's right. Well, I'm 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 so happy to have you here. Um, You and I have gotten to to work with each other a little bit over the last uh, few weeks. We are uh, here at, at Heritage Auctions, my day job. We are auctioning your boots and the dog tags that you wore through the entire run of MASH for all 11 seasons, and you were doing it to benefit your Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. I saw you on CBS Saturday morning in September talking about how you would like to do that, and I thought, hey, I'm in a position where I can actually do that. Sent you an email in September, and you uh, responded, uh, I think sometime in April, uh, the New York Times piece about Heritage reminded you that you had an email waiting from me, and it has been nothing, right. it has been nothing but a sheer and absolute delight to uh, to get to know you and to get to work with you and to get to talk to you uh, over these last few months about what you're doing at the center and uh, what you're doing with your podcast, Clear and Vivid. So let's talk a little bit about, was it a difficult decision? And by the way, David's going to ask about 90% of these questions because I have uh, hogged enough of your time over the last few months. But David okay. uh, and I wanted to, uh, I did want to talk to you a little bit about, was it difficult to decide to part with the last two things that you had held on to from MASH? No, because they were sitting in a closet and I never, I hardly ever saw them. I, I kept them be, out of a sentimental feeling that they were portable and I could, I could fit them in my house. I couldn't take the swamp, you know, that would be kind of hard. But now I realize they could do some good if the proceeds from an auction went entirely to the Center for Communicating Science that I helped start it. Stony Brook University and that I still work on after 12 years we've done amazing work in helping scientists and doctors communicate better but I was very touched by your offer not only to auction them off through heritage auctions but to not take your normal fee that that's I mean the, the, the proceeds entirely now go to the center keeping us better informed about the things that have an effect on our lives. So if you go to anybody listening, if you go to HA.com, uh, the boots are uh, up for auction. The auction actually ends on uh, the live auction takes place July 28th at 1130 a.m. Central. The boots are currently up to $30,000. We've got uh, obviously several more days to go, a couple of weeks to go, and a lot of live bidding to take place. They opened uh, at ten thousand dollars, and bidding has gone up significantly since then. And I want and to don't talk- forget, don't don't forget. Pardon me, for thirty thousand right now. If the, bid, if the bidding were over thirty thousand, you'd get not only the boots, you'd get the dog tags. That's right. You get the dog tags that you wore throughout the entirety of Mash. And as right. you and I discussed, I got to know a little bit about the men who wore them. And I want to talk some about those dog tags and those boots and what it meant to you because they were the boots were worn in combat 
The dog tags belonged to two soldiers, Hersey Davenport and Morris Levine, two very different men from very different backgrounds who you knew were real servicemen. You did not know much about them until I began digging into them and finding out no, their I life was, story. I was grateful for that because they, it meant something to me every day when I put the dog tags on and the boots. I have no idea who the boots belonged to. I don't know if they were in combat. They were pretty scuffed up, so they hadn't been polished in a long time. But the the, uh, the dog tags meant a lot to me because they had belonged to real people with real names, Ursi Davenport and Morris D. Levine. And every day I wondered, for a few seconds at least, who they were, what had they been through. How did I get to wear their dog tags? I still don't quite know how that happened. The costumer on MASH somehow got a hold of real dog tags. I don't know. Are they available? Can you buy them at surplus stores or what? I don't, do you know about that? Yeah, you can get them at second at yeah. army surplus stores. I, I have friends who wear dog tags for different reasons and they are the names of actual soldiers. And mm. you and I talked about the fact that because they were worn by real servicemen, um, that they carried weight. If they had just been prop dog tags that said Benjamin Franklin Pierce on them, it would have just been a prop, right? It would have been something that would not have meant as much to you and would not have carried the weight of war because certainly that is the subject of MASH. It's, it's set in Korea. It was about Vietnam. But as time has gone by, it is about war in all its iterations. That's right. It, it, it... You know, there's an old, there's an old saying among actors that you get to know the character a little better if you wear the character's shoes or shoes that are suggestive of the character. And here I was wearing the boots of a real person and dog tags with names on them that I knew were real people. So they weren't props to me. They were more, more like a handshake, as I said to you once before. They they put me in touch with real people who had lived through an experience similar to the ones that we were portraying on MASH. And it was very much like the interviews we did with hundreds of people who had been doctors and nurses in MASH units, where we got the stories of what they faced daily from them in plain words. And I think that's one of the things that made the show so successful was that there was no matter how silly it got or funny or or dramatic there was always the sensation underneath it all that this had happened or something like this had happened to real people and that that gave it a little strength that it wouldn't have had if it was all made up and the the dog tags and the boots gave me a little boost in that direction as well if you go to HA.com, you can bid on them. And I hope, uh, folks were listening now and when they hear it later, uh, we'll go and, and do that because, uh, the boots are amazing. I've held them. They say Hawkeye inside <laughs> the, the dog tags also tell a, a really fascinating story. Before I turn it over to David, because I have, uh, as I said, hogged a bunch of your time recently, I wanted to ask you one question, which was I went back last night in preparation for this and watched about the first season of MASH. But I went and watched the DVD and chose to watch it without the laugh track, which is what Larry Gelbart, the creator of the show, who had brought the movie and the book to television, uh, had always wanted to do because the laugh track was a canned laugh track. And it was something... A little bit like your applause 
That's, <laughs> that's exactly right. But it, I will say that watching it for the first time without the laugh track made it feel and land significantly different. And I've always- yeah, you know, they played it in England without the laugh track. And it, 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 I guess the English appreciated it because they, they would have been even more offended being told where the funny parts were. <laughs> well, it's interesting because it takes, it, it takes some of those things that were meant to be, I don't know, the, that were meant to be taken as funny by the audience or things that the network wanted the audience to land as funny take on different meaning and different significance without uh, the laugh yeah. track. And I, yeah. I wonder, have you watched it without the laugh track and, and how it felt for you? Because I think people would have interpreted MASH as a much different show without it. Well, every show had no laugh track in scenes that were set in the operating room. That was the concession that Larry Gilbert got from the network. They said, oh, no, there's going to be blood there. You don't want people giggling and stuff. It would have been better for the show without a laugh track at all. But it's funny, the audience at home must have been laughing along with the fake audience on the screen because at times people would say to us after three years or four years of watching the show, where'd that laugh track come from? I never heard it before because they were probably drowning it out. Fascinating. David, I, I, I now turn Alan over to you. Because, uh, as I said, I've, I've taken a lot of Alan all this time, and I know you have a lot of questions. One, this is an honor to have television royalty with us. Uh, also glad because, Alan, I can tell you for the last two months, every conversation that I've had that started with Robert just went, oh, I just got off the phone with Alan. Listen to what he's told me. <laughs> I didn't know I'd get into sibling rivalry here. <laughs> but, uh, no, no, as part of, I mean, you're through line in, in, in television history, and we would like to do a little bit here. I know you've talked before, and you did this on your, your Clear and Vivid podcast as well, talking about how uh, that changed as you went along when you were talking to scientists, and it got better as you as you improved. Uh, and this goes back to your improv roots with Second City and, and, and somewhere else in your start. But I was wondering, as someone who was part of, uh, of MASH and, and that character won the five uh, Emmys, uh, to West Wing, where uh, Arnold Vinnick, you won an Emmy, and Arnold Vinnick would have won the presidency if not for that pesky nuclear disaster uh, heading into the election. Uh, but all the way through to, to Ray Donovan, we were talking about how different the show is when you watch it without a laugh track. How different would MASH be today filmed in the current TV environment where it would probably wind up on HBO or one of the the streaming series where you would have a, a much different how different do you think it would be well on, on on a streaming portal there'd be a lot of cussing i think there's somebody who is the vice president of dirty language in every streaming corporation <laughs> and he doesn't count how many you should take out he counts how many you should put in <laughs> So that'd be one difference. Um, I don't know if you could do it today. Well, you wouldn't do it the same way it, because the audience in, in, in the original, uh, first season, the audience was convinced. And I think Larry Gelbart was convinced as well 
that it was not so much a show about Korea in the 50s as about the Vietnam War in the 70s, that it was uh, standing in for it. I never felt that way. I took it as standing in for all war, and specifically the Korean experience. And we we kept true to the medical um the medical resources at the time we tried to do everything as they did it in the 50s and in in the 50s in those days they discovered operations they had to because of the kind of uh weapons that were being used they 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 discovered a lot of or invented a lot of surgery that they wouldn't have if they weren't in that experience in Korea at that time. You're, the through line that you've had in television, as David points out, is fascinating to me because it does reintroduce you to generation after generation of viewer, whether it's the 30 Rock audience, the West Wing audience, the Ray Donovan audience. It all eventually leads them back to MASH. I have colleagues who I work with who are in their 20s for whom MASH has, a, has become something of a comfort view for them because they love spending time with those characters. And I've always been interested by the actor who spends a decade or so with a character who they were initially hired to play for a pilot or maybe for an episode or two and not quite understanding or knowing how long it would last. Hawkeye certainly is a character that you took incredible ownership of. You began to write. You began. You became the creative consultant for the show. You directed many episodes. You won Emmys for writing and directing and acting. So as Hawkeye began to evolve, I always have wondered where you and Hawkeye met. You know, and I think for most actors, at least for me, you and the character meet where there's life, there's there's some border where if you wanted what that character wants, how would you go about getting it? Or if you went about getting it the way the character goes about getting it, what flavor of that would you contribute? How would you do, how would you do it comfortably? So that some of the life that you personally possess gets transferred to the character. Otherwise it's pointing to a mask and saying, this is what the guy is like that I'm trying to tell you about. We were in a different business than that. We're not pointing to something. We're becoming something, trying to become as close to something as we can. So I can't, I can't really tell you exactly where the, the two meet, where the character and the actor meet. Certainly not in myself because it's a, it's a little bit of a mystery. You go for it in different ways and you hope one of them works. And no, we don't have much time left with you here, but we've talked about uh, where TV was, where it is now, and very big question now where it's going. Uh, writer strike, uh, actor strike joined today. Not necessarily getting into that, but uh, you, you did a fascinating uh, podcast not long ago with ChatGBT where you recreated a scene from MASH. Uh, can you talk about chat gbt's impact ai's impact on what you see entertainment and where it is now and, and just the the tentacles that potentially has it was a very interesting experience for me because i was trying to test what chat gpt 
add what powers it had and what it didn't have. It had great difficulty being funny. <laughs> it came up with poop jokes or the equivalent, you know, little. They do on this station boy. too, so it's the yeah. same level, I guess. <laughs> Well, then, I don't know if I'm talking point, to you. Didn't you, t- didn't you tell the app to be funny, make it funny? I did, yeah, and it would try. It would really try hard. But to get it to be a little funnier, I would have to give it a premise. I wouldn't give it dialogue. It would give me the dialogue. But I would give it a point of view, and then it could do that. So in the final, it was a scene that had never been played before because it was only written now by this robot with a lot of prompts from me. But I, every word that we read on the show, Mike Farrell and I read this scene written by the robot. Every word we we said was written by the bot. And I didn't add anything. I just moved a couple of sentences around so the punchline came at the right place and that kind of thing. <laughs> It was a little clumsy as or you can't, I can't believe in its present state it can be used to actually write scenes. I think it can be a collaborator of a real writer, a human who gets ideas that he or she hadn't thought of or get, just gets, gets supplied with things that are not just not liable to go through your head because it's scouring the internet to look for Connections. What, what's the word, what's the word or thought that comes next after this? Doing it at lightning speed. It's a fascinating thing. It's about artificial intelligence in general. And I'm very interested in the dangers that it poses. Every day there's somebody qualified to speak on it who tells us it's going to destroy humanity. So, before it destroys our sense of humor, I hope we yeah. get some. So you can attest it does destroy comedy for sure. You don't, you're not yeah, sure about humanity yeah. yet, but comedy yeah, it right. does destroy it. Once you destroy yeah, comedy, so, you've destroyed humanity. That's right. That's exactly what I was going to say. But as usual, the bot got to it before me. <laughs> well, I, I'm often confused for one, Alan. So thank you. The, um, look, I, I, it's, it's fascinating. I, I told you from the moment we met that I wanted to ask you about that episode. So David, I'm glad you brought it up because it is an interesting one where you and Mike Farrell recreate this. It's very surreal to hear the two of you perform this very stilted <laughs> sort of phony version of MASH. Um, you know, you're, it could of, have been a scene on one of our really terrible shows. We didn't have many, but. But a, a, a mistaken scene that couldn't be taken out. <laughs> I'm not sure the series would have run as long as it would have. If no, it was written by right. AI. <laughs> the finale would not have been the most watched no. television show. We would not have gotten to 105.9 million, which is still no, remarkable. Yeah, but we, 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 the people would have said, let's watch that again. It couldn't be that bad. <laughs> They would have thought it was uh, something surreal. So Clear and Vivid is where I heard it the first time. And, and folks who do not know, Alan hosts a podcast. I mean, part of your extraordinary career, you sit there and I've asked you about a million things. The podcast, all proceeds from which go to the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science, uh, which grew out of your years of hosting the Scientific American show on PBS. So before we get out of here, I do want to make sure that you talk for a minute about what led to the evolution of the podcast and to the communication science, uh, the center, because that is where all the proceeds 
from the sale of the dog tag and the boots are going. Right. On the show, Scientific American Frontiers, I, I, I did it. I, I accepted the invitation to do it because I was so curious about science and wanted to know more. And I knew if I interviewed the scientists myself, we'd spend the whole day talking about their work in science. And I had interviewed a lot of people as guest hosts on television shows. So I thought I was going to be okay. And at the first time I tried it, I made a couple of big errors in interviewing. I, I thought I knew what the answer was going to be before I asked the question. And I was wrong about my supposition. And I cornered the person I was interviewing, having to try to answer a question that was fr- framed in the wrong way altogether. And what I began to realize was my experience as an actor and as an improviser of actually paying attention to the person I'm talking to so that I respond to whatever's happening in them and they respond to whatever's happening in me, that would come in really handy if I used it in these science interviews so that I could say to them, I don't understand what you're telling me. Tell me in a different way. Or is this what you mean? and had to tell them what I think I hear and have them correct me. What happened was it became a two-person act. It wasn't one person lecturing the audience. My questions weren't prompts. For, they weren't softballs for him or her to go into a, a lecture. There was a human experience taking place. And, I, and as we ended the show after more than 11 years, I thought, what if we train scientists to get into that intimate relationship with the audience they're trying to communicate with by teaching them improv and then teach them on the basis of that connection that they make how to fashion, how to fashion a statement about their work that's appropriate to the audience they're talking to moment by moment as they sense whether they're getting it or not. And we've done that now with 20,000 scientists and doctors in nine different countries. And the results are just terrific. And it's, they, it's imperative. It's now, it's imperative more than ever. It is. I mean, the, the pandemic we went through is an example of that. There was a lot of misunderstanding and a little better communication might have saved some lives. Well, that's why you're selling the dog tags and the boots that you wore through the entire run of MASH through HA.com. Right. Again, they're up to $30,000. The The auction ends in a couple of weeks. The live auction will take place at uh, on that Friday, uh, the 28th at 1130 a.m. Central. It's been nothing short of a tremendous honor to have spent any time getting to talk to, getting to know, and getting to work with you, Alan. Uh, I think you know that by now. Um, I, I'm I'm honored that you're honored, and <laughs> and it's been fun talking to both of you. Thank you. Well, we really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. That's the great Alan Alda. I, I don't know what more to say other than the fact that he is. Can I have a copy yeah. of that applause? I'd like it when I get up in the morning. <laughs> Blake, can you uh, take care of that for Alan? Yeah, anything. Anything for Alan Alda. Alan, thanks so much. We'll thanks talk to you. Thank you, guys. You really appreciate it.